thank you so much, Effie, for coming on the podcast. I know I totally stalked you on Instagram uh, because the project you're doing is amazing to me. And then you just like, are like, hey, and by the way, aside from dealing with RA and doing a incredible um, documentary, I'm also going to be writing a kid's book. So what do you want to cover first? Like RA, your documentary or the kid's book? Because I, I could go anyway. I mean, well... I guess the documentary, I don't know if it's a necessarily documentary, but it's more of like for like film thing. I don't even know how to describe it, but we'll see how that goes. Um, we can start with anything you want. All right. Go, well, so. like first off, I have to let you know, I instantly donated to your Kickstarter campaign for your, your film that you're making because it is so close and near and dear to my heart. But we'll start off with RA because that's what kind of set all of this off. And we have, I yeah. don't think we've interviewed many people on the podcast who have RA and it's a huge um, thing. I, there's a lot of people who have it. So you got this pretty young, right? Like this started in? Yeah. I diagnosed at 18 with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Oh my goodness. So now they now idiopathic arthritis. They changed the name and there's different subcategories to it. So um, I had the one that was obviously the more aggressive kind. And, you know, kids with JRA who are diagnosed young, a lot of them come out of it in, in their teen years or adult years. And they don't have it anymore. They cannot grow it. Other people, if they have a specific form of it, it can transfer into adulthood. Kind of be like rheumatoid arthritis in a way. It's similar to that. So that's what I have. You have the rheumatoid. You you didn't luck out on the um the lottery there. <laughs> yeah, not really. <laughs> no, I hear you. Like my disorder, they're like, well, some people just grow out of it. It's like, yeah, that that really did not happen with this one. <laughs> yeah. So for people who don't have RA or no one in their family who have arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis, can you describe some of your symptoms or what a regular day is like? Well, one of my symptoms in the beginning was fatigue, night sweats. I had like random rashes and. I just thought I was kind of getting, you know, catching a cold or something, you know, and then um, I would have a joint pain and then my body was just freaking out in general. Like I had really bad acne in high school. I think I had food allergies and sensitivities I didn't know about from a kid. And so those things kind of just manifested into what my problems are now. And my dad, he did have psoriasis. So that is an autoimmune disease. And, um, so, I don't know, obviously genetics and DNA played a role, but those were my symptoms in the beginning. And I was, you know, pretty active as a kid. I would play sports, and I wasn't an athlete by any means, but I would, you know, rollerblade on my bike and just play park district type of sports. And I would go yearly for a physical to my pediatrician at the time. And freshman year, you know, going into high school, you have to get all the immunizations and all that. And so that was fine. I passed everything with flying colors. The following year is when I started having all those symptoms and my hands and my knuckles kind of just a little off to me. So I was just telling her, you know, yeah, my two knuckles on either side don't really look normal to me. And it was something more I could notice, not really anyone else. And she was like, oh, everything looked fine. You're good and healthy. I was like, okay, whatever. They talked it up to kind of more of like a growing pain type of situation, you know, since I was, you know, taller than you know, most girls, I was a five, seven, whatever that's tall for a girl. But yeah, and then the following year, my junior year, that's when things started getting a little worse. And I was having more swelling in the joints. And that's when she said that I should go see a rheumatologist. So it was more of a diagnosis that was um, not really readily apparent in the beginning. And they didn't diagnose F enough. Yeah, when you said like, in your, I read through your, your whole um, thing that goes on the oh. show notes. And 
<laughs> Sorry, the form. I'm doing well. Uh, this is before painkillers, so you're <laughs> just going to have to forgive me today. Um, oh. Yeah, it's good. It's a morning and a half, may I tell you. Um, yeah. But when you mentioned the growing pains thing, that was just thing that hit home because I, there's like when you're a teenager, it seems like a lot of the times that there's this rush to blame everything on growing pains or like, or hysteria or um, stress. And it's, it can really delay diagnosis. It sounds like you're really fortunate that you're able to get diagnosis within like a year or two, but it's amazing how often like it just gets thrown off to the side. <laughs> right. And I think for me, like I was having symptoms from 16, but I think they were coming, my symptoms were coming like before that though too, even when I was a kid or even middle school even. And it was just more very vague. It wasn't anything that was showing signs of a, you know, a chronic illness, you know, looking back, you know, there's little things in my journey of life that I could kind of be like, oh, maybe that's tied to something that is my diagnosis now, you know? So, yeah, hindsight gets really funny when you start looking back and you're like, oh, no, that suddenly makes sense. Okay. <laughs> All right. That, that works out. I didn't get my diagnosis until I was like, I think about six years older than you. I was like 36 or so when I got my diagnosis finally, and it made sense of everything going back to like eight. So it's, a, it's really one of those things where I feel so bad for anyone who doesn't have a diagnosis but is chronically sick because yeah. it, it's really hard to pull everything together and get the support you need. How did the support work out for you when you were a teenager? And that's such a weird age where you're trying so hard. To, like, at least I know I was trying so hard to fit in. It hurt. Like, it's the most humiliating thing in my life is thinking how hard I tried to fit in with everyone. And then it's like, but I'm sick. <laughs> how, how did you handle all that? Because I can tell you I didn't handle it well. <laughs> Well, high school wasn't really my prime time to shine. <laughs> Life thrived afterwards. So I didn't really have like a positive high school experience. Um, so I can't really vouch for anything other than that. But I, you know, I was diagnosed literally like upon graduating. So I didn't really have to deal with all that stuff. I had to deal with like bullying and other crap. But honestly, um, I lucked out in that sense that I didn't have to explain to anyone why I wasn't doing certain things. But the thing is, I kept it more, um, I, you know, I didn't really tell many people. I told, like, you know, maybe one or two friends, and I kept it to myself. Only my immediate family knew. So afterwards, I started, you know, telling more people about it when I was more comfortable and I kind of had a plan set in place because there was just so many things thrown at you at the time that, you know, you didn't really know what to do. <laughs> Um, but I remember junior year um, and senior year a little bit, I did sit out um, from gym class. So I didn't tell anyone why, but, you know, with like certain contact stuff, I wasn't able to do them because my wrist was showing signs of mild damage at the time. So in senior year of high school. And that's when I um, also went for a second opinion at clinic because I went for one in 2004, the summer going to my senior year. And that's when they diagnosed me first. And then I had to wait six months to get into Mayo Clinic, which sounded, you know, horrendous at the time because I was in pain. So I would go to school in pain, not knowing what's going on. I didn't tell anybody. And that's when I sat out in gym class. And then that um, January, they diagnosed me. And then so I didn't really start any treatment until that June, just because there were so many people like, oh, my God, you're going to be on methotrexate. You're going to be on this medicine. Like, you know, more like a fear type of thing, you know, instilled in me. There wasn't really a lot of, like, support at the time from outside sources. So it was more, even my experience at Mayo Clinic wasn't the best because the doctor, the head rheumatologist then told me 
18, I probably wouldn't live till 60. So it was like, it wasn't really like anything that was supportive right from the get go. And I feel like even my, my dad at the time was, you know, talking to people and they were like, oh my God, she shouldn't be on this medicine. So you know what I mean? Like it was just like, it wasn't anything of positivity, you know, in the beginning. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what my journey led to. <laughs> and that sounds then like excellent bedside manner on your doctor's part. I just try to like, yeah, I've dealt with a lot of bad bedside manner, not a lot of good ones. So, um, but yeah, that was horrendous. But you know, someone has like a chronic illness when they hear like the Mayo Clinic and they're like, oh, my ideal vacation. Like, it's sort of like this weird uh, holy ground for the chronic ill. <laughs> like everyone's trying to get to the Mayo Clinic. And sure. it's interesting. What was your experience like going through that? Um, I know if I'm saying anyone who lives in Minnesota, I don't like that place at all. Like, I, just, I don't have to go to Mayo, back to Mayo Clinic. I don't for a lot to. Um, Sorry, Minnesota. We love you. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, I just, I mean, yeah, Mayo Clinic and Mall of America, they're awesome, but I just, I don't want to ever go back. Um, yeah, the process is really daunting. Like, you have to wait six months for the application to even go through, to even see a doctor to get in. And it's ridiculous because chronically ill people, they need to be seen immediately, especially those who are, like, having these symptoms and they don't have any help. And that's, I feel, one of the main reasons why we're so chronically ill now is because people have to wait months and months to get in to be seen. And at the time, I didn't really see a rheumatologist there. I saw a dermatologist because I had um, acne. I broke out an eczema. They diagnosed me with eczema and, like, some other type of rash. So there was a lot of things going on with me that they didn't really know right away. And then, so I had to see multiple doctors at the time. And it was just, every day, it was, like, for three, four days, just constant tests. And you would just be waiting in the waiting room. That's all it was. And then they diagnosed you. They sent you home with a plan. And depending on the state you live in, they suggested you see a doctor. Um, and they gave me a referral. And that's it. And I went home. Huh. So. Well, um, that does not seem as helpful as I was hoping a trip to the mayor visit would be. Um, I had go there for, you know, I know a lot of people go there for more, you know, not serious things, but, you know, everyone has a serious thing going on, but, you know, cancers and stuff, and so they have to be there months at a time. It just really depends on the situation, you know. Oh, that's fair. Yeah, over here in um, the Bay Area, I had to wait uh, three years to see the Elder Stainless doctor, like the one. <laughs> and it was only three years because someone canceled, and I was able to grab the appointment. Wow. Yeah, it's, um, you're right, there's a huge issue with not having doctors who have the knowledge of a lot of these chronic illnesses. I mean, so many of us have, well, you have a more funded chronic illness. I have what's called the orphan one, where, like, there's no funding, no research. But um, for RA, is there anything, like, on the horizon that you're looking towards? Any good medications? Any good protocols? Um, um, I mean, they say stem cell therapy is starting to be a big thing for, you know, arthritis in general. I mean, there's so many types of arthritis, but with RA, it can be a little tricky because the way the immune system works, it's not the same as osteoarthritis or just general wear and tear, which is what stem cell is showing to kind of help, um, those, you know, uh, people, but, um, I would try that if there was solid proof. <laughs> I just have tried so many things and I've kind of gotten screwed over by them for several months to a oh year afterwards. Oh my god, yes. So, I'm just trying um, I don't know, be in that situation anymore, you know. So, that's one thing I would try. And then medicine, the medicine I'm on right now is actually working. That's methotrexate. Um, that's the one I feared from the beginning, that everyone was like, oh my god, you're gonna die on it, or like, bad things are gonna happen. 
school. So it's like the number one thing I was hearing is the one number one thing that's actually helping me now more than any other biologic I tried. Um, so that's ironic, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. And by the way, just a quick little legal note. We are not doctors. We do not pretend to be doctors. No. We don't even play doctors on TV. So um, if you have RA and this is sounding like interesting to you, please feel free to take notes and take this to your doctor. But don't just take our word for anything. We are just sick people talking. All right. Sorry. Just the, the lawyer in me needed to get that out. My sister would never forgive me if I didn't do a little <laughs> lawyer <laughs> PSA. <laughs> so for what you're dealing with, um, I'm guessing chronic pain is a huge portion of your life. And pain uh, management is a huge issue in the United States right now. Are you experiencing any of these? Um, I guess what I'd ask you is like, are you on the opioid? Like, as I'm on opioids and the the new opioid breakout has like messed with my life so much. Are you dealing with anything like Yeah, that? I'm actually not on opioid. No, um, I was on ibuprofen. Ah, I'm going to put a stop right now. So you're not yeah, doing so, the opioids, but what are your pain management techniques? And again, not doctors, but just general ideas, because that seems to be where I get the most um, hopeful is when they're like, oh, try biofeedback. Oh, try um, try breathing. Try this. And it's always like $20 a visit to $110 a visit kind of thing. And like, I would love to try stuff. It's just much more expensive than my $5 a month opioid prescription which actually works to a level I can sit here and talk to you so what do you deal with the same thing where people are always like giving you like these things that you could try and do that are like would cost like thousands of dollars a month let's be honest I mean between like all the different things do you get to deal with all that yeah I mean I I am a proponent for alternative medicine but it has landed me in medical debt because I don't have the coverage for it you yeah. know and that's you know they don't really understand so um for opioids i used to use like ibuprofen i guess that's the closest thing to it um back like 10 years ago when i was on a biologic that's what my rheumatologist at the time recommended um i was taking up to like 800 milligrams um and i don't know for me personally it wasn't the best because it did upset my like cause like gastrointestinal issues like you know more like gut imbalances but i did find out eventually i was um allergic to ibuprofen because my upper lip swelled so ever since, like, you know, five, six years ago, I don't take it anymore. Um, and then, like, the last time I was on, like, a painkiller was prior to my knee surgery. And that was Norco. But um, without that, I probably wouldn't have made it up until surgery. So, you know, I agree that it helps people because I wouldn't have been able to just live off of turmeric and fish oil during that time period before surgery because it was just the pain was really bad. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm always entertained when someone's like, why don't you just try this? And it's like, oh, first off, that's really brave of you to think I didn't try it already. And also, yeah. very like, I've had people offer like CBD oils that are $500 a month. It's like, what what income bracket did you think I was in? <laughs> it's always interesting what, what everyone thinks you should be trying before to be a good pain patient. I always find that a, an interesting question. So for you, are you affected just in your, not just, I'm sorry, that's a horrible, that word needs to go away. Are you affected in your arms, oh. legs, everywhere? Yeah, um, yeah, and going back to like the, sorry, the stuff that you're mentioning, I have tried CBD and turmeric and stuff, I just don't feel like enough, you mm -hmm. know what I mean, for my situation. Um, but yeah, my hand, my elbow, and my, my knee were impacted, so. 
Yeah, and like just to be clear, I love CBD. I love THC. I, it's part of my regimen, but I feel like it's yeah. a good supplement to the high yeah. level opioids yeah. I need to function during the day. <laughs> like, right. and turmeric tastes lovely. That's wonderful, but I I don't see it as being a like I don't need anything else now. Yeah, everyone has their own plan that works for them. You know, some people can just live off of that turmeric and CBD oil and be fine with their symptoms. But if they have a mild, like this is the thing, if they have a mild form of arthritis, it's helpful. But if they have something more aggressive, you need medicine too, you know, and painkillers or whatever you need to help you get by. So speaking into the judgmental part of the world, I'm going to segue right on into the film you're making because I am in love with it. (laughs) It is something I've dealt with. Do you want to start with the story that started all of this? Yeah, so I wrote an article on The Mighty about it, and um, basically 10 years ago, I was going to college in the city. Which dorms, and one more. So you're going to college in the city in the dorms? And... Oh, yeah, no. I, um, am I going in and out again? You are. <laughs> Skype is awful. Oh, it is the worst thing hold, ever. It is we can cut this out. Hold on. Um, yeah, can you... Am I good now? You're good now. And so sorry, everyone. I'm not going to cut this out because I don't have the energy to go through all the video and find this one portion. So please forgive us while we fiddle with things. I swear this interview is worth it. So you're going to school at the dorms. Oh, no, I wasn't living in the dorms. I was just commuting to the city to go to college. And um, yeah, commuter student. And I was taking the train and one morning it was like winter. So obviously winter time is not really a tourist friendly month. (laughs) Months. (laughs) Hence why you were not overjoyed being in Wisconsin for so long. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I ended up having to take a two-hour shower. At this time, I was on a biologic, and I was still having morning stiffness and a lot of pain. And that's when I was taking my painkillers. So I would, you know, go about my morning routine, take my painkillers, and go on the train, like, seven thirty in the morning. But I still had, like, pain on the bottom of my feet and everything. So I, I think like whoever complained, they saw me um, get out of my car and like run up the platform and, you know, swing my backpack. And that day I had to bring my book. So I, it looked fishy, I can't say, um, but they didn't know what was going on with me, um, you know, with my life. So they just automatically made an assumption that I was misusing it and they had called the cops. I don't know who called the cops on me, but someone showed up to my house later of the cops. Wow. And then, you know, we're. Yeah, a complaint um, was issued, and we just want to make sure no one's misusing this, blah, blah. So then I just kind of gave them the rundown or, you know, told them that I am using it. And he said, okay, fine. And then he went out about his way, you know. So that was the story for me. The video that I made wasn't really necessarily my experience being approached. Um, in the video that we're making, that it's going to be a reenactment type of scene. And it might not be that type of scene, but it's going to be something else to show what people go through with invisible illness. And there's going to be other aspects in the video, but that's kind of the gist and the inspiration. And this happened to me 10 years ago, and I wrote this article two years ago, and there's been a lot of people who've reached out to me with their own experiences about it and who are still having this happen to them, like, now, you know, 10 years later. So that's an issue. Why is it still happening? You know, so... That's kind of what we're going to get at in the video, why we're raising awareness for it. 
You know, one of the questions in our show notes is like, what would make moving through the world easier for you? And I can't tell you how many times I've gotten the answer of, I wish I could sit down on the trains without being afraid of what people will say. I wish I could park my car in a disability parking spot and not worry about the judgment of others. Like that's a big thing that keeps people from leaving the house is this fear and this shame. And like, I've certainly experienced the same exact thing of where I had parked my car and I used canes and I hadn't even gotten fully out of the car before a person came up to me and started in on me. I was waiting for my canes to come around. It was insane. Um, but I, I find those things funny. I, I can definitely see where people get very frightened or nervous or upset. Um, so do you have any stories that really hit you as people are writing in their stories? There's a lot of comments. Um, I mean, one of the examples I made in my Kickstarter video is a lot of people, they have had notes written on their cars and locked on their dashboard. I never had that happen to me, but there, some of these notes are just, you know, I don't know, obscene. Like, I don't know how people can sit in their cars and, like, write something like that to someone else and place it on there. And that's, like, you know, one other thing I want to talk about in my video, um, the other side of these people who approach people or do this, like, there must be a reason for them to do that, maybe. Um, I know there isn't really necessarily a good reason to ever treat anyone like that, but if you see it from their view, like, maybe someone is denied disability and they get angry seeing someone else use it, you know, like, there's another view too that I'm not gonna like necessarily support in my video, but I'm gonna touch on to maybe kind of get that view out there that sometimes people who approach others, they're trying to defend those who are using disability placards. Does it make sense? It makes perfect sense. And that was actually why I, I ended up donating to your campaign. I, I don't usually donate, um, so please don't suddenly send me like a bunch of everyone's projects. I, I don't usually donate to anything I'm on disability, but the most part of the reason why I donated to yours was because you showed the other side of that. And I'm a firm believer, thank you, Gentle, for this idea, um, that you can't take away someone else's humanity. And it's really easy to look at someone who's attacking you and just go, oh my gosh, you're a horrible person. How could you do this to me? But you also showed a different side of what someone else might be feeling or fearing. And the fear usually is what makes people act like assholes. So <laughs> I really thought you had a, a very good point. And that's why I wanted to reach out and, and to um, donate to your project. Because it was absolutely fantastic in seeing that other side of things. That's definitely a huge issue. And that's what a lot of people commented, too. I, you know, I have some people who reached out to me and were saying that there is another side, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I took that into consideration as well, you know, but um, the main gist of the video is for those living with invisible illness and what they go through and what they're still going through. Cause it was, you know, a kind of shock to me that this happened to me in 2009 and people are still experiencing this in 2019. And there's been so much things going on in mass media that, there should be more awareness and why people are still doing it mind-boggling. Yeah. It is. I mean, it'd be really nice if um, there were more characters on regular shows that people watch that have invisible illness so that there's a little bit more understanding of what lives are like and what disability can look like. I think that would be tremendously helpful. So anyone in Hollywood who yeah. might be listening, hey, let's let's kick this up with some invisible illness characters. I swear we'll all watch it. Like the mighty will explode. I'm not kidding. The mighty will flip out. You will have so many viewers. Just some real representation would be nice. I hear Jamila has uh, Eller Stainless. She's an amazing actress. 
cast her with what she has. It'd be great. We're all in. Um, but I think that would actually really help. I think that most things that have been hidden off to the side in the margins in our society, once they became part of public culture, there was a huge shift on how people were treated. I think this could, you know, using the media for good. <laughs> right. Social media can be bad sometimes, but it can be for good too. So. It can absolutely help. I think that the, social media is what's really helped a lot of us with, with illness and disability yeah. get our stories out yeah. and like what that looks like. <laughs> And why, yeah, why the meme of, like, the lady getting out of her scooter to get a bottle of wine was not, you know, the miracle on aisle 13 was a really rude meme, and it wasn't appropriate or acceptable. So it's it definitely helps. I remember how scared I used to be when I first started with my wheelchair. Like, would someone see me outside walking and then in a wheelchair the next day and think I was, like, full of it? Like, I went through, like, paranoia for, like, two years because I don't need my wheelchair every day, but I do need it when I need it. Yeah. So there's this like weird paranoia and shame thing going on. If I'm talking a lot, it's because our Skype connection is awful. So when you hear me just rambling, it's because I'm just waiting for um, for Skype connection to come back to me so I don't have to do a ton of editing. So forgive me as I ramble. But if I remember correctly, you are also going to be doing a YA book on rheumatoid arthritis. And I'm so, I'm like a little jealous. I've done like five, I think I've done five books so far. And I keep wanting to do one on chronic... I've done five books. Yeah, five books published for kids, um, picture books, because I illustrate in my free time. I'll put that in quotations, free time. Um, so I was, I was so, I always wanted to do one on chronic illness, and I'm so excited for your project. Do you have any ideas of what you're going to do with it? Because you're, like, right in the planning stages yeah. right now, right? Yeah, I think you yeah. are. Or <laughs> you told me oh. you are. Hello. Okay. okay. I don't know what's going on? <laughs> we're having fun with Skype is what's going on. Okay, so we were talking about the Kid Lit book because I am so psyched about that. I've published a few and I've always wanted to do one about chronic illness. So talk to me. What are you thinking? Have you already started the process? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this is my first one. I know you said that you made several. Um, so I should be the one that's <laughs> I mean, that's really hard. So I know that you um, are an illustrator. That's what I saw. Um, I'm not an illustrator by any means. I'm just, I just write. So for me, the process is slower. If I was an artist or an illustrator, I'd probably be able to produce more. But um, right now in the process, I am in um, the editing phases, trying to finalize the story to make it, you know, perfect. And I have already narrowed down, you know, two illustrators that I'm thinking of working with. and. Yeah, I mean, right now, um, I do plan on self-publishing because we know, um, or many people might not know, that it is very hard to get to, you know, regular publishing if you don't have an agent. Um, I did a Twitter pitching event um, called DVP It, um, and I did win like a free editing query thing from an agent, but who knows what will happen with that if I try to do it in April, but... That is my goal right now to self-publish because you know for this book that I now it's um, for kids with juvenile arthritis and um, my book there's not going to be any human characters it's um, an animal <laughs> so um, it will be an interesting take on that but uh, the way I want the character to look is very specific in um, my vision so I know with um, you know working with a publisher. Um, they usually do pick the illustrator. You don't really get to see much of the process. So, you know, 
that's kind of where I am 50-50 on right now. And that's where I'm at my process. So what got you to, is you're doing some really creative things from your, and I believe me that you're speaking my language on like, I'm sick, I, I need to do something. So how did you come up with, with all of this? How do you have the drive? How do you stay motivated? You know, I, I've always wanted to write a book, um, and more of like, you know, adult books, so, um, like self-help, maybe like a memoir down the line when I'm older, um, cookbook. Those were the things that were kind of on my radar. Um, the children's book, yeah, but it didn't really, um, you know, it didn't really click with me until maybe a year or two ago. Um, I was doing, you know, this health coaching program, and I guess part of the program was do a book course and kind of learn how to make a book, self-publishing it. And um, at the time I was doing the course, I didn't really know which way I wanted to go. And they did bring up, you know, children's books a little bit, and I started talking to various people who've done them, and I found a Facebook group um, called Children's Authors and Illustrators. There's many of them, but um, this guy who runs this group, it's pretty good. Um, there's a lot of people who've been really successful in um, what they do with self-publishing. So um, I was inspired just randomly. Um, I had always been ideas down, but it just didn't click with me, like I said, after that book course was done that the path I want to take right now to write children's book and maybe a couple others afterwards um before I do anything else because I didn't really have the inspiration for my other books that I do want to write I have like this idea and the titles for those but you know those take time you know to write like a 200 200 page book you know 100 page um yeah so I don't know if that makes sense I'm rambling but <laughs> that's kind of what um I am doing right now you are talking to the queen of rambling, so you're doing great. Don't worry about it. Um, you know, like, there's, we're so lucky, I feel like, and it's a weird word to use, but I do feel like we're tremendously lucky to be sick in this era. Like, if you look at being sick 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it was a different game. And the ability to self-publish, that's really, thanks to Amazon in a huge way, and all the different programs that we have available to be able to get our voices out there. And we have social media, like we have so many things that I'm really grateful for that weren't around earlier. Right. Self-publishing is hard though. I mean, it's, I don't know if you have done that or if you've done the traditional. No, route, self. I, I don't have the energy to hound down an agent and like, I can barely get through oh. my disability paperwork and my doctor's appointments. I would be so screwed unless there's an agent who's listening he's like i loved snuggle bunny and a fairy good night yes we would love you sure please if you want to handle everything my god take it off my hands like right. that'd be great marketing is not well, something i have energy have sorry yeah, from what people have told me, uh no sorry from, from people have told me usually you have to do your own marketing most of it even afterwards so yeah. that's why i'm trying to do this um whole indie thing you know um and it's nice that we have the option nowadays but yeah, so this book is um, partly inspired by my journey. Um, I'm going to put some, you know, real life experiences in it to be relatable to kids and their parents. Um, so hopefully by the fall, it will launch. That's my, you know, goal. You know, things obviously get delayed and stuff, but, you know, we'll see. I'm so excited for you. It's so needed. I mean, if you look through Kidlet, um, there are so few characters of color. There's so few characters who have different... Um, abilities like it's so um, homogenized and there's a lot of stories that are really missing from kids lit and I think that 
one of the most important things we can ever see is ourselves when we're children looking at literature or film or anything like we need to see ourselves in there to know that we're part of something and I think what you're doing is so important I'm really I'm proud of you I don't know you very well but I'm very proud of you <laughs> some wonderful yeah. projects that you're you're doing and the placard thing just building that awareness is so important it's um it will create so much more freedom for so many people if they don't feel afraid to go out and use their placard yeah i hope so and you know um obviously if i don't raise the funds then that's fine i mean there's always a plan b i have in place i have a whole year to do i do want to get this project um off the ground this year so um we'll see how it goes and um i'm not worried about it i don't think my goal but um, there'll be other routes I can take to create that possibility. So I'm not worried. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I'm going to cut out before Skype decides to do it for us again. But on the show oh. notes, if you guys head over to invisiblenotbroken.com, you're going to see a whole bunch of buttons. You can follow Effie on all of these places she gave me that she's on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, you can join up on her YouTube channel and you can absolutely, there's a big button that says to donate to her project. So just click that button if you would like to donate. I think it's a really worthwhile project. Like I said, I donated. I think it's amazing and I, I'm really excited for it. Um, tune in next week. We'll be doing some more interesting interviews. I believe it will be Dr. Phillips is going to be the next one. We'll see. Um, but he's back with us to talk about everything sex and chronic illness. Um, so that'll be a really fun episode. If you want to do something really nice for the podcast, please head on over to um, Apple Podcasts, leave some stars, say some nice things. Or hey, if you have not nice things to say, say them kindly. I have three feelings left. Be nice to those. All right, everyone. Have a great week. Be kind, be gentle, and be a badass.